Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. This is the second day we're talking about Greg Bear's Darwin's Radio. Oh, I did find out more about Greg Bear. No, he does not have a PhD in physics, as I thought. He is very seductive, very deceptive, because he writes so much about what they call hard science fiction, which is real solid science fiction dealing with science aspect of it. He's uh, got a bachelor's, maybe a master's, but at least a bachelor's, and not a lot of focus on science courses. So what he really does is just a lot of research before he does each one of these novels. Uh, we're dealing with Greg Bear's Darwin's Radio, and in today's New York Times, front page, March 7th, Tuesday, 2006, we have a story that interestingly relates to another thing I was going to show you that directly addresses the novel and the ideas in the novel. Anyway, here's the front page story. Still evolving human genes tell new story. Providing the strongest evidence yet that humans are still evolving, researchers have detected some 700 regions of the human genome where genes appear to have been reshaped by natural selection, a principal force of evolution within the last 5,000 to 15,000 years. Now, mind you, Darwin's idea of natural selection is just this, the theoretical link that they're positing to come up with a reason for why this evolutionary change happens. That the evolutionary change happens is absolutely unambiguous. But the why it actually happens, natural selection certainly is one reason why it happens. There was no ambiguity about it. But is it the only reason? And what we're getting with Greg Bear's Darwin's Radio is other possible things that could that could occur. And what we've seen in so much science fiction is that so much science fiction actually turns out to be real, turns out to have really come about. So what did we get with, the, with Greg Bear's Darwin's Radio? It's not a definitive statement, yes, viruses can also induce evolution, but it raises the possibility. Are there other things other than natural selection? We know natural selection works. Are there other mechanisms that can also work? And the reason I'm raising that is I will, after we read a little bit of this story, show that, I uh, discuss how there are some problems with regard to just assuming natural selection within the current context. There might be something else going on. All right, let's, let's read. But it may be that natural selection is the whole, the whole show. We'll see. Anyway, anyway so that the, uh, there are 700 regions of the human genome where genes appear to have been reshaped by natural selection, a principal force of evolution within the last 5,000 to 15,000 years. The genes that show this evolutionary change include some responsible for the senses of taste and smell, digestion, bone structure, skin color, and brain function. Many of these instances of selection may reflect the pressures that came to bear as people abandoned their hunting and gathering way of life for settlement and agriculture, a transition well underway in Europe and East Asia some 5,000 years ago. Under natural selection, beneficial genes become more common in a population as their owners have more progeny. That's the basic idea of natural selection. The question I have for you now, does that, is that seem as relevant to the current time period where populations or, or the number of children per 
the fertility per woman, the number of children per woman is dramatically going down, right? Where some countries like Italy and Australia and even the United States, it's getting under two. In Italy, you have one of the lowest birth rates in the whole world. I think it's like 1.7 or something. Italians will simply disappear. They'll become extinct eventually if this keeps going. <laughs> well, you know, and that's predominantly because of the use of birth control. Regardless of what happens in the Vatican, birth control is heavily used in, in, in Italy. Same thing with New Zealand and Australia. Anyway, so, three, and in China, the, you know, the birth rate is way down. So what's going to happen? Is natural selection really going to be the main mechanism by which evolution takes place in the future? But it certainly seems to have been a, pretty, you know, a, a dominant issue in the past. Okay, let's keep reading. Three, popula- three populations were studied, Africans, East Asians, and Europeans. In each, a mostly different set of genes had been favored by natural selection. The selected genes, which affect skin color, hair texture, and bone structure, may underline the present-day differences in racial appearance. The study of selected genes may help reconstruct many crucial events in the human past. It may also help explain why people over the world have such a variety of distinctive appearances, even though their genes are on the whole similar, said Dr. Spencer. You give me a chance to turn to page 15 as I get inside the article. Spencer Wills, director of the Genographic Project of the National Geographic Society. The finding adds substantially to the evidence that human evolution did not grind to a halt in the distant past, as is tacitly assumed by many social scientists. Not me, however. Don't throw me in that category. I don't assume that. <laughs> Even evolutionary psychologists who interpret human behavior in terms of what the brain evolved to do hold that the work of the natural selection in shaping the human mind has completed, was completed in the pre-agricultural past more than 10,000 years ago. And of course, this also directly addresses what many creationists or intelligent design people would be thinking about humans. But just on the academic side, all right, now there's a quote. There is ample evidence that selection has been a major driving point in our evolution during the last 10,000 years, and there is no reason to suppose that it has stopped, said Jonathan Pritchard, a a population geneticist at the University of Chicago who headed the study. Dr. Pritchard and his colleagues, Benjamin Voigt, uh, Sridhar Kudravali, Jaokwan Wen, and Jaokwan Wen, report their finding in today's issue of PLOS Biology, P-L-O-S Biology. Their data is, actually that's a mistake, their data are based on DNA changes in three populations gathered by the HapMap project, which built on the decoding of the human genome in 2003. The data, though collected to help identify variant genes that contribute to disease, also give evidence of evolutionary change. The fingerprints of natural selection in DNA are hard to recognize. Just a handful of, pre- of recently selected genes have, been previously, have previously been identified, like those that confer resistance to malaria or the ability to digest lactose in adulthood, an adaptation common an adaptation common in northern Europeans whose ancestors thrived in milk. But the authors of the half-map study released last October found many other regions 
where selections seem to have occurred, as did an analyst published in December by Robert Moyes of the University of California in Irvine. Now, one more paragraph and then we'll stop. Dr. Pritchard's scan of the human genome differs from the previous two because he has developed a statistical test to identify just genes that have started to spread through the population in recent millennia and have not become universal, as many advantageous genes eventually do. Now, you see, we're talking about a small pool of genes. I mean, uh, genes becoming dominant in a small pool of humans and then later on spreading. The selected genes he has detected fall into a handful of functional categories as might be expected if people were adapting to specific changes in their environment. Some are genes involved in digesting particular foods like the lactose digesting gene common in Europeans. Some are genes that mediate taste and smells as well as detoxify plant poisons perhaps signaling a shift in the diet from wild foods to domesticated plants and and animals. Dr. Pritchard estimates that the average point at which the selected genes started to become more common under the pressure of natural selection is 10,800 years ago in the the American, I'm sorry, in the African population and 6,600 years ago in the Asian and European population. Okay. And it goes actually. It, it goes on to talk about uh, changes in the farming process, connecting that with with the different genes, and as well as the uh, evidence from skeletal from you know skeletal structures and things like that. Okay. So what we get here is the idea that human genes are still evolving, very actively still evolving. Now, the question that we were raising before is, what are the stresses? Now, Greg Bear is raising in his novel, Darwin's Radio, the idea that under periods of stress, we may change our bodily chemistry through the hormones of stress, such that we trigger new evolutionary occurrences. And what he's talking about is that punctuated evolution, where sudden changes occur in the evolutionary history. Now, what they're talking about now is natural selection and rather gradual changes that are still occurring. But from Greg Bear's perspective, he's addressing the issue of what happens when stress occurs and we get a sudden change, an adaptation. Now, is it just natural selection? It may be, in fact, just natural selection. But could there also be some triggering mechanisms? that, Because when the hormones, the stress hormones come out, they're fundamentally changing the body chemistry. So they are affecting the way we act, the way we behave, the way within that stress environment, the way we survive in that stress environment. Now let's think about this. What are the stresses that are affecting the human population now? Go ahead, go ahead. How do you start? Overpopulation. Over what? Overpopulation. Within the last 25 or 50 years, the Earth's population stopped. Huge population growths, okay? Huge population growth. That's one of them. Technological advances. I mean, it will advances in medicine. I mean, I mean, if you're talking about natural selection, I mean, one of the things that people, it's not like politically correct talk about, is the fact that people who were born with Trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, for instance, 
um, before we had medical advances where we could treat them. I mean, even you know, back when humans lived in the wild, if someone was born with trisomy 21, they died. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't care for them; they were left behind. They died. Now, I mean, and there was this age where they were just kept in you know mental institutions because no one knew how to treat them. And now they're becoming more common in society. People with Down syndrome because they can uh, be taught to handle tasks, you know, that that are within their are within their capabilities. And now they're working in society, but we're sort of moving against natural evolution. I mean, natural selection. I mean, natural selection would naturally okay. select but against those people. Let's let's now focus though. What what is in terms of the overall planet? What is the over, what are some of the problems? Overpopulation is interesting, but what is overall popul over you know large growth in the population connected to another thing that causes us to be stressed? This winter, for example, has been very mild. Global warming. Global warming. When we have more people, plus also Jason was mentioning about technological change, you have the ability for these more people to run to run cars, refrigerators power usage, air conditioners, things like that. And you get the possibility of global warming. What other aspects of the environment could be causing us stress? The over the increase in the population is causing us to act in ways that's you know in, is warming up our planet. What other things is happening to our planet that could cause us stress? There's the age old um, story about the ozone hole. The ozone hole, which is actually, that's one of the few successes, they've actually stopped the chlorofluorocarbons, actually predominantly stopped, they've reduced the chlorofluorocarbons being emitted into the atmosphere. The ozone hole is still, I'm sorry, could you get that? Thanks a lot. The ozone hole is still an issue, but the ozone hole is becoming less of an issue, and they're hopeful in the next uh, 15 to 20 years it will shrink back up. What we were facing with the ozone hole in the very near term future is planetary starvation because of the ozone hole, unlike what Ronald Reagan said when he was asked well what do you do about the ozone hole? He, he very glibly remarked wear a hat <laughs> now, <laughs> now I do wear hats but the issue is you know, can you protect yourself from the ultraviolet radiation? No, you can't because you have to eat the ultraviolet radiation would have killed all plant life, and then there would have been no food to eat. I mean, even even if you're a meat eater, the cows have to eat the plants. So that's what we were facing. And we were facing that as a possibility within 25, 30, 40 years, uh, planetary di- you know, disaster of, of mega proportions. So that seems to have been slowed down. We managed to, you know... Hold it at bay. Now there's still an ozone hole problem, but it doesn't look like it might doesn't look currently like it's going to continue to grow out of proportion and kill us off. We have a serious issue to have to deal with, but it's not going to kill us off tomorrow. Okay, the ozone hole. What other stresses in the environment are we facing that are tied to human activity and more humans being around to do that activity? The AIDS epidemic. The AIDS epidemic, why would that be related to human activity? Not just sexual activity, but human activity that's, that's characteristic of the current time. Well, if AIDS did break out 10,000 years ago in a spot on the planet... It would have been localized. It would have been localized, exactly right out. We never would have heard about it in terms of big time. It would have, it would have died out where it was. 
but we fly. We go everywhere. We travel about. And so something that breaks out in wherever suddenly is all over, everywhere, and you have a major epidemic. So disease. Disease is a fundamental function of this modern lifestyle. Yes, sir, What's that? I think we've been getting more and more uh, like large, dangerous epidemics that could happen. There was the bird flu that came up. There the bird the flu. Excellent, Otto. The bird flu. If the bird flu had happened, you know, 5,000 years ago, well, it might have spread, but would it have spread the way it's spreading now? Would it have been all over the place? We don't really know. Now, it does appear that the major flu pandemic that occurred early on in the, in the 20th century was very similar to this bird flu, and, and that so it can actually spread. And we did have the plague. Remember the plague all throughout Europe, so that... We do have the possibility of major pandemics going through. But some some diseases may not spread as quickly. Age is one, we have to question what about the bird flu and so on. But what are the things besides diseases, global warming, things like that, are we facing in terms of stress? We learned so many. What's that? Right now there's a the culture is more and more getting a lot of money for your job. Well, in the past, family, religion, all played a big role. Our culture itself is changing to the point where now it's get a good job, get lots of money, then you'll be happy. So the competition for there's more people competing for like, the same or fewer jobs. Okay, we have correct. We have economic competition, and much more than in the old days, humans are becoming clearly economic commodities. Uh, that was something that was really dumped on the head of uh, uh, Richard, uh, De, uh, uh, Ricardo because uh, what happened was with uh, Ricardo's innovation or, or modification of Thomas Malthus's ideas, uh, David Ricardo was saying basically that humans have become uh, identifiable in terms of their monetary value in production. Anyway, so clearly in the days in, in, in contemporary society, humans are experiencing more and more stress because jobs migrate because jobs migrate because the, the job itself is just an economic idea and that causes stress on people to change to an economic community. From a social community where you had hunters and gatherers and you lived in a community of people just living among themselves. Now everyone has a value. And whenever you meet someone new, one of the first questions you ask is, what do you do? How do you identify yourself? Are you a computer programmer? Are you a professor? Are you a teacher? Or do you work as a sales clerk? What do you do? And that's the identification of that person's personality. That's a change. From 10,000 years ago, that's a big change. Let me raise some other issues. Just overall pollution. We're breathing stuff. We're breathing stuff. What about the exploitation of our natural resources, like oil? Exploitation of our natural resources. We're burning oil all over the place, changing the way we live. We're breathing the, the, the fumes of these oils, the fumes of the gases. Also, we're consuming more and more of these resources. Our forests are disappearing in, gr in greater numbers. The Amazon, it's destiny, you don't have to be psychic to know this, the Amazon's destiny is a golf course. 
And the same with the jungles in the Congo. They're just being cut down. Wherever there's money to be made, people are going to chop them down. So our natural environments are changing in a, in a dramatic way. And when you go to a city, if you were to take a person from a natural environment 10,000 years ago and throw them into Manhattan, I mean, that urban jungle is totally so alien. Talk about the shock. They'd go into, they'd go into shock right then and there in terms of how could you live that way. Well, human beings have to adapt to that type of urban environment as well. And urbanization as a stress, a change of the environment that humans live in is changing everything as well. Now, I ask you, this goes back to the question, is natural selection then the only means by which humans can adapt? Adapt. Does this raise Greg Bear's idea that there may be other things related to stress hormones that can cause adaptation? Perhaps this virus idea of transmuting genes in a sort of a random fashion, in a random fashion. And also, are the genetic changes that are occurring truly just random, or are there viral components or other components that we don't yet understand that are doing the snipping and the cutting and pasting of the genes into different areas? What's actually making the genes move? Is it just random genes, random movements, or that later get sorted out with natural selection, or is it something else? Well, if you look at the current problems of society, is it, it does, what's going to get us out of this? If, if natural selection or any other mechanism is going to help us survive, what's going to get it out of us? Is it, is it going to be because we discover a new food source and can munch on food better? Is it going to become... A, what's, gonna, what's the one thing about all that we're doing to stress ourselves... It's all coming from the brain, right? We're all doing things. It's behavioral. We're actually thinking differently. So if there's going to be something that causes us to change, it's got to change our behavior. And this gets at what Edward O. Wilson... Remember we talked about Edward O. Wilson talked about earlier? This gets what he was talking about with regard to that juggernaut theory of natural evolution, which is people like all species that develop intelligence. And he is assuming that on any planet where there's life, the evolutionary march will eventually lead to the direction of intelligence on some species, be it, a, be it insectoid species, a reptilian species, a mammalian species, whatever. Some species will move in the direction of intelligence. And evidence of this, of course, is overwhelming. The apes are very close to us genetically, very, very close to us genetically, and their brains are not far off. The dolphin, the porpoise brains are larger than ours relative to their body mass, just physically larger than ours. We do not yet know what they use that larger brain for, but they have bigger brains than us. So clearly it is possible for other species to develop intelligence. So what we have is the question of, can then the evolution change the way we think? That's what... Edward O. Wilson is saying. And what Edward O. Wilson is saying, you have only a short amount of time. In the newspaper article today, they're talking minimum 5,000 years, 10,000 years, 15,000 years. What is Edward O. Wilson giving us? Well, go ahead. About 20 or 30. Not 20 or 30. Actually, he's talking uh, on the short side for a meat-eating culture, a meat-eating culture that... <coughs> consumes the sun's energy with great inefficiency. 
He's talking about how many? Do you remember? I don't know. I was going to say it seems shorter. Like it's Much, happening right now. Like 150 years. That's the juggernaut. And if you have a totally herbivore culture, a culture that consumes the sun's energy more efficiently by directly eating plants and just doesn't use the resources of the planet so quickly, might have a longer period for that juggernaut. 300 years, say. So on evolutionary terms, we're talking a blink of an eye. So if we're going to survive, we can't rely on 10,000 years of natural selection. Our behavior has to change like quick, really quick. So this is a good test of the hypothesis of whether or not humans or any species can change quickly without having to rely on natural selection by itself. Meaning, can we change in time to survive the juggernaut and literally to be around in a few hundred years. The question is then, can natural selection or whatever the mechanism that is dominant in such periods of great stress, can that mechanism change thought? Change thought. Because unless we can change the way humans think genetically, unless we can change the way humans think, then we're doomed. Now, I have some interesting thoughts. That our bodies can affect the way we think is clear. When you go, to the, go through the hormonal spring of young adolescence, you just can't think of anything else but sex. It's just there. A ferret, a ferret, a female ferret. If a female ferret, when she becomes fertile, cannot find a male ferret, she dies. She just, her literally, her hormones burn her nervous system apart until she dies. That's how strong it is. And the thoughts of sex, when you, when, when my son, my son's now 13 years old, and I'm sort of starting to couch him, I say, you know, it's going to happen. My son, Aziz, it's going to happen. And just be aware, it's a trick of the body. The body can make you think things. It's not like you're rationally thinking. It can make you think things. All right. Now, so... The very fact that the body can make you think certain things can then the genes also make you think about protecting the environment, as Edward O. Wilson says, we need to learn how to do. Well, it just so happens that in May 2005, there was an unbelievably important article that was published in the leading journal of political science, unprecedented. And it demonstrated a really thorough study that our genes are affecting the way we vote, <laughs> the way we think. And there was an article about it in the New York Times. It was, it was the May issue of the American Political Science Review, and it was written by Our Political Orientations Genetically Transmitted. That's the name of it. By John Alford of Rice University, Carolyn Funk of Virginia Commonwealth University, and John Hibbing of the University of Nebraska. Let me read the, the uh, uh, abstract in the beginning of it. And then, let me zip over to the New York Times summary of the discussion, because they also interviewed the authors. That gives a little extra insight into what we're dealing with. From the, from the article itself, we test the possibility that political attitudes and behaviors 
are the result of both environmental and genetic factors. Employing standard methodological approaches in behavioral genetics, specifically comparisons of the differential correlations of the attitudes of monozygotic twins and diazygotic twins, we analyzed data drawn from a large sample of twins in the United States, supplemented with findings from twins in Australia. The results indicate that genetics plays an important role in shaping political attitudes and ideology and ideologies, but more important but, but I'm sorry I'm sorry, but a more modest role in forming party identification. That means you're born as a Democrat or as a Republican, as a way of thinking. Okay, now let me get back. As such, they call for finer distinctions in theorizing about the sources of political attitudes. We conclude by urging political scientists to incorporate genetic influences, specifically interactions between genetic heritability and social environment, into models of political attitude formation. This was a path-breaking. Now, I'll, I'll shut up and let everybody talk. Just a minute. Let me just read the New York Times article about this because it sort of summarizes it in more layman's terms. Okay? Political scientists have long held that people's upbringing and experience determine their political views. A child raised on peace protests and Bush loathing generally, attack, generally tracks left as an adult unless derailed by some powerful life experience. One reared on tax protests and a hatred of Kennedys usually lists to the right. But on the basis of a new study, a team of political scientists is urging that people's gut-level reaction to issues like the death penalty, taxes, and abortion is strongly influenced by genetic inheritance. The new research builds on a series of studies that that indicate that people's general approach to social issues, more conservative or more progressive, is influenced by genes. Environmental influences like upbringing, the studies suggest, play a more central role in party affiliation as a Democrat or Republican, much as they do in affiliation with a sports team. The report, which uh, appears in the current issue of the American Political Science Review, the profession's premier journal, uses genetics to help answer several open questions in political science. They include why some people defect from one from the party in which they were raised and why some political campaigns like the 2004 presidential election turn into verbal blood sport, though polls find little disparity in Americans' views on specific issues like gun control and affirmative action. The study is the first on genetics to appear in the journal. I thought, here's something new and different by respected political scholars that many political scientists never saw before in their lives, said Dr. Lee Siegelman, editor of the journal and a professor of political science at George Washington University. Dr. Siegelman, the editor, said in many fields the findings would create nothing more than a large yawn, but in ours, maybe people will storm the barricades. Geneticists who study behavior and personality have known for 30 years that genes play a large role in people's instinctive emotional responses to certain issues, their social temperament. It is not that opinions on specific issues are written into a person's DNA. Rather, genes prime people to respond cautiously or openly to the mores of a social group. Only recently have researchers begun to examine how these predispositions, in combination with childhood and later life experiences, shape political behavior. 
Dr. Lyndon J. Eaves, a professor of human genetics and psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University, said the new research did not add much to this. Dr. Eaves was not involved in the study, but allowed researchers to analyze data from a study of twins that he is leading. Still, he says the findings were plausible. And the real difference, the real significance here is that this paper brings genetics to the attention of a whole new field and gives it a new way of thinking about social, cultural, and political questions. In this study, three political scientists, Dr. Hibbing, Dr. Alford, Dr. Funk, combed survey data from two large continuing studies, including more than 8,000 sets of twins. From an extensive battery of surveys on personality traits, religious beliefs, and other psychological factors, the researchers selected 28 questions most relevant to political behavior. The questions asked people to please indicate whether or not you agree with each topic or are uncertain on issues like property taxes, capitalism, unions, and X-rated movies. Most of the twins had a mixture of conservative and progressive views, but overall they leaned slightly one way or the other. The researchers then compared dizygotic or fraternal twins, who, like any biological siblings, share 50% of their genes, with monozygotic or identical twins, who share 100% of their genes. Calculating how often identical twins agree on an issue and subtracting the rate at which fraternal twins agree on the same item provides a rough measure of the gene's influence on that attitude. The shared family environment for twins reared together is assumed. On school prayer, for example, the identical twins' opinions correlated at a rate of 0.66. Now, one, one is the very highest. Zero is the lowest. So 0.66 was the correlation, a measure of how often they agreed. The correlation for fraternal twins twins was 0.46. That's much lower. This translated into a 41% contribution from inheritance. As found in previous studies, attitudes about issues like school prayer, property taxes, and the draft were among the most influenced by inheritance, the researchers found. Others, like modern art and divorce, were less so. And in the twins' overall score, derived from 28 questions, genes accounted for 53% of the differences. Can you imagine that? 53% of the differences in the way people think are accounted for by genes. But after correcting the tendency of politically like-minded men and women to marry each other, the researchers also found that the twins' self-identification as Republican or Democratic was far more dependent on environmental factors like upbringing and life experience than their social orientation, which the researchers call ideology. Inheritance accounted for 14% of the difference in party. That's still a significant amount, a difference in a party. The researcher challenge. We are measuring two separate things here. Ideology, whether they're conservative or liberal, that's heavily influenced by genes. And party identification, which seems to be influenced by genes, but less so. He added that his research team found the large difference in inheritability between the two very hard to believe, but it held up. The implications of this difference may be far-reaching. Now listen to this for the implication stuff. For years, political scientists tried in vain to learn how family dynamics like closeness between parents and children 
or the importance of politics in a household influenced political ideology, whether they're conservative or liberal. But the study suggests that an inherited social orientation may overwhelm the more subtle effects of family, dyna- family dynamics. The mismatch between an inherited social orientation and a given party may also explain why some people defect from a party, meaning if their genes are leaning in one way but the family is leaning in another, those people are having cross-cutting pressures on them and they can leave. Many people who are genetically conservative may be brought up as Democrats and some who are genetically more progressive may be raised as Republicans. In attitudes that tracked over the years, geneticists have found that social attitudes tend to stabilize in the early teens and the late and the late teens and the early twenties when young people begin to fend for themselves. Some mismatched people remain loyal to their family's political party, but circumstances can override inherited the inherited bent. A draft may look like a good idea until your number is up. The death penalty may be barbaric until a loved one is murdered. Other people whose social orientations are out of line with their given parties may feel discomfort that can turn them into opponents of their own party. Now it's something relevant to here in Georgia. Listen to this. Zill Miller, he was our former governor, right? And he turned out to be a real strong pro-Republican, fighting against Kerry, supporting Bush at the National Convention type of a person. Okay, so here goes on. Let me quote from Dr. Alford. Zell Miller would be a good example of this, Dr. Alford said, referring to the former Democratic governor and senator from Georgia who gave an impassioned speech at the Republican National Convention last year against the Democrats' nominee, John Kerry. Support for Democrats among white men has been eroding for years in the South, Dr. Alford said, and Mr. Miller is remarkable for remaining nominally a Democrat despite his divergence from the party line on many issues. Reached by telephone, Mr. Miller said he did not see it quite that way. He said that his views had not changed much since his days as a Marine, but that the Democratic Party had moved. And I'm not talking about inch by inch like a glacier, said Mr. Miller, who makes a case in a new book, A Deficit of Decency. I'm saying the thing got up and flew away. Well... The idea that certain social issues produce immediate, unthinking reactions comes through other political research as well. In several studies, Dr. Milton Lodge of the State University of New York at Stony Brook has shown that certain names and political concepts, taxes or Clinton, for example, produce almost instantaneous positive or negative reactions. Instantaneous reactions like that would likely be somehow genetically, genetically conditioned. These intensely charged political reflexes are shaped partly by inheritance, Dr. Lodge said. It may be the class of visceral, genetically primed social orientations that gives political debate its current malice and fire, the study suggests. So when you're really having a heated argument about politics, it may not be logic that's going on at all, but a deep genetic bias on each side toward a different opposing for different opposing things. Now listen... Although the two broad genetic types, more conservative and more progressive, may find some common ground on specific issues, they represent fundamental differences that go deeper than many people assume, the new research suggests. When people talk about the political debate becoming increasingly ugly, they often blame talk radio or the people doing the debating. But they've got it backward, Dr. Alfred said. Listen to this, folks. 
These genetically predisposed ideologies are polarized, and that's what makes the debate so nasty. It's hardwired into these people. They were born that way. You see it in people's eyes when they talk politics. You can hear it in their voices. After about the third response, we all start sounding like talk radio on some issues. Now listen to this. This is the last two sentences of the article. Hits home. The researchers are not optimistic about the future of bipartisan cooperation and national unity because men and women tend to seek mates with a similar ideology, they say. The two gene pools are becoming, if anything, more concentrated, not less. Interesting, interesting. Talking about a global situation. Now, listen to what's going on now. If this is true of what's going on in the United States with regard to liberals and conservatives, and if the genes are dominating the the debate, the ferocity of the debate. Remember what we were talking about with situations elsewhere in the world? Let's pick one. Iraq is current, so let's talk about Iraq again. The Shiites and the Sunnis? You have to raise the possibilities. And you can say, but, you know, they're so similar. They're so close. Similar religion. Well, wouldn't anybody in the world say the same thing about Democrats and Republicans? They're so similar, but they're at each other's throats. Well, the Shiites and the Sunnis in Iraq. So similar, but they are at each other's throats. What we now know is that the genes actually play a large part in the ferocity of these conflicts that are occurring. (coughs) Well, what I wanted to raise this for is to show you that These are behavioral issues that are directly relevant to our survival as a species. It's not just destructing, destroying the environment, but the way we think about politics. How many of each one of us had an argument with somebody about politics? We've all had those things. And the other person just didn't see it our way, and we don't know why. And we ended up saying, they're idiots, because they didn't see what's so logic. Now, the big mistake to make is to say, so that explains why they are so screwed up. That's the big mistake, because... We are all hardwired genetically. We all have those genetics in it. So we're just as screwed up as they are in that regard. The only thing that would arguably make us less screwed up is if we had a mixture of genes, a good blending, if we're all hybrids. So we had the conservative and the liberal genes mixed together. But what this gets us to with regard to Greg Bear's novel is two things. A, we are under a period of stress. And B, it seems quite clear now from the scientific evidence that the genes are responsible for a great deal of our bad behavior. Person who has the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most, no, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's a genetic predisposition that can kill us as a planet. And we are all suffering from that. So the real question is, if Edward O. Wilson is correct that we are facing a juggernaut theory, a juggernaut of human evolution where we have only a brief period of time, and we've got billions of people on the planet, we really have only two options in front of us. Either Greg Bear is correct and there's a faster way than natural selection under periods of tremendous stress for us to evolve so that our thinking will change. Or, what's the other option? We die. 
we die. Or we're going to have a very large downsizing of the human population within the next few hundred years. <laughs> There's a third option. Though. What's that? There's a third option. I'm sorry, Adel. There's a third option. What's the third option? That we can change our thinking without the need for an evolutionary change. For example, like after a world chatting event, take the First World War, people's like fundamental ideologies were different. Like there's no evolutionary change that could cause that. Mm-hmm. What happened is the social and like economic everything like changed like so drastically that people were forced to change as well. Mm-hmm. So it's viable that people could like not now because we don't see it as an immediate threat. But by and by the time it comes to the future, it's probably going to be too late. But something might happen which causes a like change in the psyche of the populace without okay. So, so what you're saying is that we might get a middle ground solution in a sense. What you're saying is that stuff may happen, crises may happen, such that our psychology, not necessarily our genes, but our psychology may change our behavior enough so that our window of opportunity, our window of survival, our juggernaut will be longer. And we might have a longer time to work out the differences. Well, that would be interesting. And that is a good option, that this the window of opportunity for the human species that has evolved intelligence to survive may be extendable if we can change certain things enough. That would give us a bigger window of opportunity and allow the juggernaut not to be so severely constricted. That's a good point. It's going to be a tough call. It's going to be a tough call because you've got populations that are in China and India <coughs> that are racing to become as heavy consumers of human resource, of natural resources as ours. We are extremely wasteful, our society in the United States. And India and China, where that booming economy is going, they are consuming energy like, like, like it's going out of business. It's got to be, but you know, bought now and used now. And so the real question is: Are these forces that are affecting all but the overall planet going to be moderate? Are, 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 is it going to be possible to moderate? those forces diversely given the loose fragmented structure of political of our political reality the United Nations has such a weak organization but it's a good question uh, and, and what you're saying Adil is we may be shocked by some major forces that sort of create us a, a stronger sort of world government that can enforce bigger changes on everybody it's a possibility because the idea that a smart evolution that like Greg Bear's idea it's interesting but like I don't like I'm probably coming from a closed point of view which isn't good but I don't see it as anything more than an interesting idea mm-hmm. that the like I like under stress I like know humans will change but the idea of 
like having some kind of smart controlled change rather than random changes mm-hmm. I mean this is the first place I've heard about it and it does like it doesn't from the understanding that we have now at least I have now mm-hmm. it doesn't make a huge amount of sense same with the idea that our genes predominate our uh, political thinking I, I, from everything that I've been taught everything that I hear of as common knowledge it's like genes I can see how they would definitely play a part but I can't see how they would be the like major deciding factor over what you brought up in because like two people because like it's the way you brought up your parents your other like schooling, religion up to now people have always been saying that that's what decides it so like it's an interesting idea but it's only like the one people who put forward this thing I must admit it's the beginning of a new science it's the beginning because until the science mm-hmm. is established it's not going to gain the following that well actually it's, it's already got a lot of people talking and the but study upon it which it's made the studying upon which it's made was extremely broad. I mean, it was a huge number, big population size. You're not talking 100 or 200 people that were studied. 8,000 twins, pairs of twins were studied, and really it's a... And, but the thing is, they found out from those twins, from the stuff that you read, that the twins had similarities in their political perspective. However, a, my assumption of that theory is they were brought up in the same house. Well, they control for that too. They show for when they're when the twins are brought up separately. What happens? What's the differences uh, relative to the genes that are similar? It's a very complicated study. That's why I referenced the entire study. I only read the New York Times article, which is a brief summary of it, but the actual original study, which is available for free as a download from the uh, website of the American Political Science Review. So I encourage you to to look at it. It's a new set of issues, and you've not been addressing it in your other political science classes, nor are you probably going to, because it takes sometimes a generation for these radical new ideas to penetrate the the classrooms. Max Planck was the one who said this first. He said that he said, when you get big changes in physics, it's not because somebody comes up with a great new idea and says and everyone says, Wow, finally you figured that one out. Great. All right, let's everybody change what we're talking about. What happens is you have generational change. You have to wait till the old guys die off. And I mean guys, men and women, the old professors, they have to just simply retire and die off, and they get replaced. And that's yet another indication that there's a genetic predisposition to a way of thinking. And that the it's very hard to change people's ways of thinking because they get genetically structured. What is probably likely is you have a combination of social and genetic forces that combine. And what Edward O. Wilson is now confronting is the idea that the social forces and the psychological forces have to combat the genetic forces in order to get the whole human species through the genetic problem of the juggernaut theory of human evolution, which is to get us to get us to survive long enough so that we can change our behavior enough so that we don't destroy ourselves by destroying our planet. That's the real question. So, Audrey, you're raising very excellent points, and I must admit that if you were in a room of political scientists, you'd get a whole bunch of them agreeing with you. This is brand new stuff. 
I suspect that in 25 years, if you raise the exact same point, you would have a whole bunch of new political scientists who are graduate students now saying, oh no, the case for genetics is quite solid. In 25 years, though, I may have a different point of view. Pardon me? In 25 years, like the, the new science will probably be a lot more advanced, so hopefully I'll have a different point of view at that point. Too. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how things go in that guard. Okay, let's get back directly to the novel. But what I'd like to use this for that we just discussed is is an indication that what the novel is talking about is a very real possibility. Genetics affect the way we think. And our survival is currently under stress right now. So the possibility of this novel actually having direct implications to what we're dealing with as a species is very real. Does anyone... I've got some uh, things that are really interesting to talk about, but does anybody have their own favorite passages that they want to talk about? a passage? There's one here on 301. 301. That kind of says a lot about people, I guess, and, you know, their thought processes right at the top of 301. Okay, this is in chapter, this is for people who are, got a different edition. 51. It's in chapter 51. Chapter 51. <coughs> okay, great. Uh, Herod's going to decimate an entire generation Pasco mm-hmm. said a third of the women coming to us don't even test positive for Sheba they haven't had a miscarriage they just want the baby out then wait a few years and see what happens we're doing a land office business in birth control our clinic classes are full we've put on a third and fourth classroom upstairs more men are coming with their wives and girlfriends maybe that's the only good thing about all this men are feeling guilty and then Lipton said there's no reason to terminate every pregnancy the Sheba tests are highly accurate mm-hmm. and I, I just I kind of thought it was interesting that when something like this happens People aren't willing to accept, or people people become so frightened by, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. that, that you know they immediately jump to, well, let's get rid of the baby. We we don't we don't even know. Let's 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 just get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of thought that was a little I mean, not strange, but I mean, I thought it was a little it was it was telling about how people. How people deal with <laughs> stress. You're talking about stresses in evolution, yeah, yeah. and it's like this is this is part of that. I mean, people getting rid of babies based on you know this life, this, this okay. stress. They're they're naturally selecting in yeah, their own sort of way. That's good. Now, in that's interesting. They are naturally selecting by aborting. They're they're getting rid of the possibility of their progeny going forward. Meaning, the people who are not aborting those progeny will actually come out more. Now. What are the two main issues then that are causing the social reaction? Remember, there's riots in the street in, in, in Greg Bear's novel, Darwin's Radio. What are the two main issues? And you're touching them right now with this passage. This well, passage is great. One of them was one of them was a bunch of people who were like, let's just I remember at one point I was just walking through the street, and there are all these people talking about how they should just naturally go forward. They should keep having children. They should just keep... The anti-abortionists. The anti-abortionists. That's right. Okay. And what's the other group? Uh, the abortionists. I would assume the RU46 people. Yeah, the, and, and also, they are also the ones who are 
more desperate with regard to demanding a, an immediate solution. So the rioters were two types. Once they were storming the scientists, the meetings they were having because they wanted a solution and now, a vaccine now, access to abortion medicine now. And then we had the other ones who were absolutely opposed to abortion. Now, this novel is very potent because it really had terrorist activities also. Remember, the President of the United States was was killed, and many of the cabinet ministers and scientists was killed in a bomb explosion. By the governor of Alabama? That was... Pardon me? Uh, I, after reading that passage, I got the distinct impression that the, government, that the governor of Alabama killed the president. Well, what he's basically saying is that there are, actually, from our genetics discussion that we just had, there are some people who are going to be very rigid in the way they think, and they are going to react ferociously. From our genetics discussion, that can be expected. Now, this is very similar to something I wanted to... Let's go over to chapter 55, which is on page 317. And let's, let's compare what you just raised. Jason, excellent, excellent passage. <coughs> and these strong feelings. By the way, the abortion issue is being raised in the United States again. South Dakota just passed a bill banning all abortions. It's going to be testing Roe versus Wade. It'll go right up. The conservatives, yeah, yeah. the conservatives just got their brand new conservative-packed Supreme Court. And now the first thing they do is send up a court case to see if they can overturn Roe versus Wade. It's going to be a very interesting thing. But what we have in our new our research is these are genetically predisposed ideas people have. Okay, now watch. These are, that's not partisan identification. That's classic ideology stuff coming out of genes. Now, let's look. Page 317, chapter 55. He understood better now. Now, this is Dickin talking to Kay Lang. Christopher Dickin talking to Kay Lang, two scientists. He understood better now. The mass called the shots. If the mass could not understand, then nothing did, or Augustine did, or the task force, nothing uh, would nothing would matter much. And the mass quite clearly understood nothing. The voices drifting his direction spoke of outrage at a government that would slaughter children, voices angrily denouncing morning, morning after genocide. He had thought about calling K. Lang earlier to regain his composure, his sense of balance, but he hadn't. That was done with. He with that was done with. Finished in a very real way. Dickon descended the steps, passing news crews, cameras, clumps of office workers, men in blue and brown suits and dark glasses, and wearing microphones in their ears. The police and National Guard troops were determined to keep people away from the Capitol, but not to prevent, but did not prevent individuals from joining the crowd. Yeah, this is not a passage with Kate Lang. This is a passage where Dickon himself is entering the crowd. He had already seen a few senators descend in a tight-packed group and join the masses. They must have sensed that they could not be separate, superior, not now. They belonged with their people. He had thought them both opportunistic and courageous. Dickon climbed over the barricades and pushed into the crowd. This is where he's actually pushing into the crowd and trying to get a feel of what these, the masses are actually like. It was time to catch his, this fever and understand the symptoms. He had looked deep inside himself and did not like what he saw. Better to be one of the troops on the front line, part of the mass, ingest its words and smells, and come back infected so that he could, in turn, be analyzed, understood, made useful again. That would be a kind of conversion and end to the pain of separation and if the mask should kill him maybe that was what he deserved for his previous aloofness and his failures younger women in the crowd wore colored masks 
All the men wore white or black masks. Many wore gloves. More than just a few men wore tight-fitting black jumpers with industrial fume masks, so-called filter suits, guaranteed by various enterprising merchants to prevent the shedding of devil virus. People in the crowd at this end of the mall were laughing, half listening to a speaker under the nearest pavilion, a civil rights leader from Philadelphia sounding out in deep, rich tones like a caramel. The speaker talked of leadership and responsibility, what the government should do to control this plague and possibly, just possibly, where the plague had arisen inside the secret bowels of the government itself. How many times do you hear things like that when something happens? The government did it to us. Some cry out it had its birth in Africa, but we are sick, not Africa. But we are sick, not Africa. Others cry out it is a devil's disease that strikes us, that it is foretold to punish. And so the speaker went on. Now, listen. Dickon moved on until he came under the more frantic voice of a television evangelist. The evangelist was brightly illuminated, a large and sweating man with a square head wearing a straining black business suit. He pointed and danced around his stage, exhorting the crowd to pray for guidance, to look for deep, to look deep inside. What do you see happening in this paragraph? We're running out of time, so let's, let's focus on it. What do you see happening in this paragraph? He's entering the crowd, and what is influencing the crowd? These speakers, or these people who are talking, and it's kind of like what we were talking about with unigenic predisposition to certain political things. He's walking by, and he's seeing, you know, like, the the... Christian fundamentalist, you know, he sees the land where the first speaker was um, the first speaker was a civil rights leader, right? Which is going to be your, uh, your there's going to be the left, and, and he sees you know the civil rights leader, you know, and he's claiming it came from deep inside the government, kind of this you know far left crazy, you know, and, and he turns away from it because you know his, his genetic predisposition isn't to, to listen to that kind of thing. Then he comes up to the televangelist, he sees the televangelist, and the guys, you know. Fundamentally, I would assume on the right, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the Christian right, and he sees this guy and he says, "What?" Well, and actually, the next line right here is, "Dickens thought of his grandmother would like the sort of thing." Yeah, know, that's right, his grandmother. Now, one thing we can say is that these people are not the president of the United States, right? Right. So, what happens when something happens when something happens that cannot be controlled by the government? Where do people turn? Do they turn to the president? No, they turn to these other leaders. Now, there's an interesting thing that might, we might look at with regard to other issues that are directly addressed by science fiction. For example, contact with extraterrestrial life. The former defense minister of Canada, Paul Hellyer, has gone on record as saying, look, there's a huge cover-up. Everyone needs, it has to break eventually. Uh, UFOs are, would have been studied and, and known to be real for a long time, and there, in fact, there is, in fact, uh, beings from above that are watching us. And... Then I asked one time my good friend, who's now deceased, Mike Duval, who was in the top white, top five members of the, of the, uh, of the White House in both the Ford and the Nixon administrations. And by the way, Paul Hellyer confirmed his understanding of the former Defense Minister of Canada confirmed his understanding about the UFO issues uh, with. Uh, a top general in the Pentagon. As he understood, he knew a good friend of his. He said, is this stuff real or not? And the guy said, it is very real. Now, I asked then Mike Duvall, I said, well, what would happen? He was in the top five of, the, of two White Houses. What would happen if this is real? And he said, he said two things would happen. The first thing, the, thing, the, the first thing that would happen is that the President of the United States would look at the Pentagon and say, can you defend us against this? Whatever it is. If it's real, can you defend us against it? 
And if the Pentagon gives him an answer, no, then the answer from the president will be, then under no circumstances can this information be let out to the public. If we cannot control it, we must do anything to disrupt it, to discredit it, to make sure it's not understandable. Uh, accept it. Why? Because exactly what Greg Bear is talking about here. The other people would rise up. The opportunists, the wild people would rise up and they'd seize the attention of the crowd. One good prediction that you can understand that when the time eventually does come, should it come, you know, should it come, if, if the UFO hypothesis, extraterrestrial life hypothesis, which I'm not saying is true, but if it is turns out to be true, then one sign, one signal that the government is going to be talking about it will be some fundamental scandal in the UFO extraterrestrial new age community. Why? Some fundamental scandal, and you can be guaranteed that they've set it up in advance, because all of these opportunists, all of these people, the radio television people, the, te the radio talk show hosts that talk about this stuff, all those people would become gods to the public. The people would quickly turn away from the government and quickly turn to all of these opportunists. And what you're going to have to have is some scandal that will knock them all out so that there's nobody else that's credible except the President of the United States. And that will be a good prediction to when the time is coming to talk about these things. If Paul Hellyer is correct, and if the question about uh, the question I posed to Mike Duvall is, is correct as well. Very interesting stuff. The point is, when major changes like this occur and the rabble starts to rise, what's really happening? Is it intellectual thought that's rising, or is it what we've been seeing about? It's genes. It's the way people think. We're so vociferous in our ways of thinking because we're genetically programmed to be that way. And when we get ideas that are really different from us, the way we've been thinking before, it's very hard to reason with people. They react strongly, which of course is, would be a, a Pentagon type of response for why you have to keep information from the people. They're genetically predisposed to, to be wild, so you have to control what they know. You know, there could be many people who argue with that, but it's an interesting debate. It's a very interesting debate. We've covered so many things that were raised by Greg Bear. There's so many more things that we could raise that we could talk about but we must go on to the next novel. And the next novel is starting in two days, and it's a great one. Ender's Game. Ender's Game. Okay, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. One of the great, one of the great novels. So we, talk, we read the first couple hundred pages by Thursday, and then we finish it after spring break. Great.